Well, unless my eyes deceived me, a moment ago I saw a flash. Uh, so please, please hear this uh, charge. If you see any, because I, I don't know, to be honest with you, exactly what I saw. I was kind of spaced out in worship. So uh, if you see any visible lightning, uh, you are encouraged to retreat to your car. There's plenty of space up here. It's not going to bother me if you come pulling in in your vehicle and park and open your windows. Uh, we're just going to do our best to get through this the best we can. Um, we know who controls the weather, right? Do we know who controls the weather, church? Is that just something that we say? No, we believe that God is in control of all things, that God is sovereign over all things, including the weather. And so evidently, we needed these rains. We needed even these peals of thunder and other things that we've seen. So you are not going to distract me one bit. I have the Word of God to feast on this morning. And if you feel like you need to hop into your car and move it up here close, do so. If you feel like you need to grab your seat and come, there's plenty of seats under this shelter. Do so. Join Eli around the camera right here. Just give him some elbow room because he's, he's growing. He's long and lanky. Don't want don't to crowd that kid. But get under his tent. There's a tent up here. We can move these tables. Make use of anything around you uh, because we want you to be safe. And uh, we just, there's just nowhere else to go, right? So we're going to do the best uh, that we can. So anytime I get to fill in for Pastor John, of course, it's, it's an honor because it's, it's Pastor John. So to stand in his shoes is always a, a humbling thing. And like I said earlier, our hearts and, and our prayers more specifically uh, are with him and with his family uh, as he cares for his mother. Uh, but he's just jumped into a new service with us called What If, right? Asking what if questions. And he's asked three so far. What if we kept silent? which I think is a great question to ask as we're out here in nature, right? Because he told us, he pointed to the text and said, Jesus told us if, if, if everybody were silent, if all people were silent, even the rocks would cry out because his name must be glorified. His name must be praised. And so we're surrounded by rocks and uh, the song of creation this morning. And as beautiful as that is, it still doesn't compare to the songs of praise and uh, the testimonies of the redeemed. And that's who we are. So we want to worship. He said, what if there is no resurrection? We looked at that on one of the Sunday mornings. And we looked at the hopelessness that we would be trapped in if there was no resurrection from the dead uh, that was uh, begun by Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. And then what if Jesus returned today was the third question that uh, John asked. What if Jesus returned today? How would that change things for us and change things moving forward? And so this morning, I want us to ask this question. What if our heroes leave us? What if our heroes leave us and fade away? See, in America, we love our heroes. We love the romantic notion that there will, quote unquote, Never be another one like fill in the blank. And heroes are not in and of themselves bad things or certainly not bad people. Uh, not at all. We need heroes. It's not a bad thing that we love our heroes, respect our heroes, and even honor our heroes. But we'd better not idolize our heroes. We don't need to make idols out of our heroes. Paul and Silas and Timothy was a hero to the Thessalonian church. And that's where we're going to be this morning in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a waterproof phone, break out your phone. Or if you have your Bible with you and an umbrella over your head, break out your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 1. See, it's tempting to think that we live in a day where we're tempted to wish for our heroes more than previous eras, right? Things are just so crazy now that that's why we look so often and kind of look back longingly on who our heroes were and wish that they were around again. We say if such and such were still around, he'd be speaking out against all this stuff. Or if such and such were still president, he'd not allow all this stuff. Or if such and such were still coach, we'd still be winning. Or if such and such were still in charge, she wouldn't put up with this mess. But as we'll see later, every generation has had its heroes who seem more perfect in the rearview mirror than they ever seemed through the windshield. We don't just do this with people either. We make ministries and programs and ways of doing things into heroes, hero ministries, hero traditions, hero programs. And we say to ourselves, if we could only recover doing that program or that ministry again, or whatever the case may be, fill in the blank, everything would be okay. But what we're going to see this morning in our text in 1 Thessalonians 1 is exactly what Jesus will use to build his church as he always has. And here's the answer. What if we lose our heroes? What if we lose our heroes, church? Here's the answer. We'll be just fine. Because Jesus, the true and better, has given us by his word the rhythms that are going to stand even as all other things fall. Prayer, gospel, repentance, discipleship, mission, and testimony. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1 together. Beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before God and the Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth in those two places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not even say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word for us this morning. And let's see this first. The first rhythm that God has given us, independent of our heroes, is prayer. It says, we give thanks to God always because of you, and we constantly mention you in our prayers. And see, here's the truth. Our heroes were nothing without prayer, especially our spiritual heroes. Our heroes were nothing, and they are nothing without prayer. If I asked you who your spiritual hero is or was, I'll bet they're a person of powerful prayer. I've mentioned a quotation from Oswald Chambers before, and it bears repeating now. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And thus prayer will be uniquely something that we do both first before we get to the work, but then also throughout the work. But as often as we can, we want to begin with it as well. John Bunyan wrote, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. It's fitting then that Paul begins his letter to these suffering brothers and sisters in Thessalonica with prayer saying, we give thanks to God for you. We're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He's both beginning his address to them in this letter with prayer, 
And he's going to carry on praying for them, constantly mentioning and remembering them according to the text. We see another model of this in Acts and a connection to our question. What if we lose our heroes? You see, in Acts 1, the apostles are faced with the task, a, a, a really hard task, of replacing not only a hero, but a fallen hero, a treacherous hero. One of their number, Judas Iscariot, who was numbered among them, has betrayed their Lord and received his due reward, the field of blood, a keldama. And in Acts 1.14, we find the following. All of these with one accord, all the believers, were, devoted themselves, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they're together and they're praying. And then what happens? Well, Peter stands up and quoting the book of Psalms, we ought always to look for our church strategy in Psalms or in, in scripture and particularly the Psalms as well. The Bible is the ultimate church structure and church practice book. He stands up and quotes the Psalms and he compels the group to replace Judas. And since they were already praying, two names were immediately put forward. And we read in verses 24 and 25, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own way. And the same thing happens when deacons are called to serve. But if you read that text, it, it almost seems like they only prayed after the fact that somebody noticed the need and they were like, hey, let's, let's call up some who will serve because we need to be devoted to teaching the word. And then it almost looks like names were given and then they prayed after the fact, like, well, Lord, bless those we've already chosen. But if you look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, they were already in a culture of constant prayer. Always they were praying, these believers. They're thinking, is prayer really that important? Yes. Prayer is that important. And prayer, by its very nature, recenters us on who should be the focus of our walk, not our heroes, but our God. We can't pray to our heroes, but we can pray to God the Father. So if our heroes leave us, we don't skip a beat. We pray and continue praying. What do we do after that? We focus on the gospel. That's verses four and five. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. And the gospel does two things in the absence of heroes. One, it produces certainty. It gives us certainty and assurance in what we believe. The Greek word that's used here for no is iodotes. It means there's no doubt. They are certain that God has worked in the lives of these Thessalonians because the gospel came and it produced certainty. And we're all desperate for certainty nowadays, aren't we? That's why I think we're so tempted to look back on our heroes because we know them, right? We know what they would say. We feel like they would give us certainty. There are times when you're going to feel solid and immovable in your salvation. Those of you who might be baptized this morning, depending on the weather, there are going to be times where you feel super certain about your salvation. And times when you doubt. It's going to be important to remind yourself, to be reminded by God's word, reminded by those around you, that how you feel about your salvation doesn't affect your salvation. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the Lord Jesus is kind to doubters, just ask Thomas. But we also don't want to just embrace doubt and give in to it. Well, I'm just a doughty doubter. James 1.6 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We need to walk the line there. 
The gospel does more than produce certainty, though. It produces love. He says, brothers loved by God. It's so interesting that Paul, who is fond of actually saying beloved brothers, which speaks of Paul's love for them, he states it differently here. And he's focusing in them, these believers who are in the midst of persecution, he wants them to hear, God loves you. Why is that important? It's important because of what's true about God. He's unchanging. He's timeless. He's constant. He's transcendent. He will not fall. He will not fail. He will not despair. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. So Paul is anchoring their hope and their assurance in the God who was and is and is to come. When our heroes fail, when they fall, when they go on to glory, we say, God loves us. God is still good. God will provide. We say with the Holy Spirit inspired psalmist, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So it produces love. It produces certainty. And thirdly, it produces evangelism. It says our gospel came. Notice that Paul doesn't say we came to you. No, he says the gospel came to you. The gospel had been let loose by Jesus on the road to Damascus uh, in Paul's life. And he's going to unleash the gospel everywhere he goes after that. Him and his companions. This says the gospel came to us and thus the gospel came to you. And what that means is the gospel is outside of us, not limited to us, but it's also at work in and through us. The gospel was before our heroes and will be after. It's untarnished by the moral failings of our heroes. You ever put somebody on a pedestal and then seen them fall from grace? How heartbreaking is that? Why? Because we've invested so much hope in who they are and, and, and trust in them. When our trust should be in the gospel. And the church in Thessalonica understood this truth. And we're going to see how well they understood it when we look at mission here in just a few minutes. But how many times will we say, man, that guy who had a huge platform, boy, he really failed. Before we start to see that the platform might be the problem. Brothers and sisters, if Pastor John or I ever seek fame, rebuke us in the strongest possible terms. If we become too mindful of the applause of men, rattle us. If we become too focused on numbers or buildings or newspaper articles or anything else other than the approval of Jesus, admonish us. It wouldn't be a bad thing for us to adopt the creed, no hero but Christ. Because heaven has its prince, church family. Creation has its firstborn. God has his, ser- his chosen serpent crusher. Scripture has its hero. The Alpha and the Omega, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the King of Glory, the King of the Jews, the way, the truth, the life, the unquenchable fountain, the inexhaustible bread, the light that darkness can't understand. He who was born of a virgin and lived sinlessly and perfectly and laid down his life to be crucified at the hands of sinful men and who was raised up to life on the third day and triumph over death. No hero but Christ, the line of Judah, the lamb fit to open the scroll, Christ the righteous. Who wouldn't want to introduce someone to this Jesus? Who wouldn't want to be introduced to this Jesus? And sometimes I hear people talk about their favorite band and their favorite singer and their favorite team or whatever the case may be. They can take you seven layers deep on the stats. They can talk about their draft strategy for the last six years. They can talk about all those same things in their fantasy football league. But they speak with no passion about this Jesus. Paul wrote in chains and under house arrest, the word of God is not bound. 
How can he write that if he's chained up and bound in a house? Because the word of God is not bound to men, it binds them. When we lose our heroes, we have the gospel. As Pastor John says, the man of God goes in the ground, the gospel goes forth. So what does the gospel bring? It brings repentance. That's verse 5, very quickly here. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So that it came not only in word, but in power, right? And you hear people say often, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And I think that's one of those statements that sounds really good, but actually isn't that good. Because hear the word of the Lord. How will they call on him in whom they not believed? But how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear if someone doesn't preach? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But whether you have your hero there to preach the word to you or not, the power is still at work because the spirit is at work in the word and the spirit is the power. And that's good news. Do you know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh and is described as extremely rough and, and unkept in appearance? That Charles Spurgeon struggled with despondency and depression? That Martin Luther struggled with anxiety and fear? That Jonathan Edwards was prone to bouts of self-doubt and self-criticism. These are some heroes of the faith. But they preached the word powerfully because the power was not in them. It was coming through them. All of our heroes and our ministries and our programs and our music that we've made into an idol, all of those could disappear in the blink of an eye. And the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit would be just as powerful as they've always been. So it came in word and in power. It also came with full conviction. One of the most heartbreaking times in ministry is when I sit down with someone and I ask them for their testimony and I hear no conviction whatsoever. It becomes evident that they've never seen their sin for what it is or been convicted about it. It's a, well, you know, my dad did this or my granddad did that. And, and you know, I grew up here and I grew up there. And, and it, it's more of a travel log. There's no, the Holy Spirit caused me to see my sin for what it is and, it, and I'm broken about it. And I need a savior. I knew I needed a savior. It's a godly kind of guilt. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. For godly grief produces repentance. And that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What a wonderful idea. Godly grief. Godly grief. It's not shame. Those who are being baptized this morning have expressed this to us, to Pastor John or myself in one way or another. This godly grief which produced a repentance and has led them to salvation without regret. And that's what baptism is, right? Baptism essentially is, it's a scream of no regrets. I've got no regrets. Jesus is worth it. Plunge me into the waters of his death. Raise me to walk in the newness of his life. So thus far, we've seen prayer lead to the gospel, which has led to repentance. And what follows on after that? Discipleship. Discipleship. He says, no, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, there are no heroes in discipleship because everyone who disciples is a hero. There's this movie, The Incredibles. It's one of the Disney films that was released before they made it their mission to go to war with the gospel. And there's a little boy in it who desperately wants to be a superhero. His name's Buddy. 
and uh, he becomes the villain, spoiler alert. And during one of his villainous monologues, he says, then everyone can be special. And when everyone is special, no one will be. And I don't think old Buddy's far off from the truth where discipleship is concerned. That's probably why Disney sees him as a villain. If Disney thinks he's a villain, he's probably on the right track. See, scripture tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. And so if you picture that, if you picture everybody around those trees right there, over here, wherever we are this morning, if you pictured everybody lifting everyone else around them up, what does that mean? That the person next to you is lifting you up. And we're all lifted up together on the same level. That's what discipleship is, and that's what discipleship does. Thus, James might say, brothers, show no partiality. That's possible only in Christ. Everywhere else in the world, it's partial. Work is about how much you can achieve. Sports are about how good you are. All these other things are contingent on something. Only in the gospel do we hear you are worth something and you are worthy because Christ has made you worthy and you're made in the image of God. Doesn't have anything to do with what you can bring to the table. You can be part of our fellowship. Real heroes, then, in the sense we've just defined it, will lead, according to the text, a worthy life. He says, what type of moon we prove to be? We see echoes of Hebrews 13 here, right? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, men like Pastor John. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. But look what he follows that with. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we have to remember that the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 is just two chapters outside of the hall of faith a listing of all some of the greatest heroes of the faith in the Bible. There's a connection here to our analysis of the gospel, right? Brothers loved by God. Paul was founding the certainty, the certainty in God's unchanging nature. He says, he says, look at them and imitate them. Why? Because they're really good dudes. No, because they're super famous. No, because they're really smart or important or did really well in business. No, Consider and imitate them. And then he follows it with this. Because Jesus Christ is the same. Because Jesus is yesterday, today, and forever the same. Discipleship will go beyond a worthy life. And it goes on to becoming a worthy model. You have to become a worthy model. Imitation. That's it. Discipleship is imitation in a very real sense. Here's a simple formula. With Christ, I do something. Then I bring somebody else in, and with Christ, I do as they watch. Then with Christ, I do, and they help. Then I say, you try, and with Christ, they do, and I help. Then with Christ, they do, and I watch. And then I can step back completely and say, you just run with it now. Start your own D group. Reach out to your peers in your own way. So what should we model, though? We're being called to model something. We model exactly what's in the text. Prayer, gospel, repentance, discipleship. And how should we model it according to this chapter of Thessalonians? With joy. It says you did this with the joy of the spirit. And joy differs from happiness and that joy is independent of circumstances. We can be sitting in the rain with the fog and the peels and everything else this morning and still have joy. Why? Because it's not dependent on the weather. It's not dependent on what's going on in our lives. We have joy in the spirit and trials and tribulations and suffering on the mountaintop and success and blessing. Joy is the same. And Paul makes the connection between joy and independence from circumstances because he says you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
So evidently joy isn't impacted by the affliction. And no one sticks out more than a person with joy. And guess what joy is tied to? Prayer. Until you have asked, this is Jesus in John 16, until now you've asked nothing in my name, but now ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. A worthy life, a worthy model with joy. And finally, discipleship says, now you, so that you became an example, verse 7 says. We want to be disciples who make disciples. Being discipled implies that we have been given an invitation into discipleship. And then it implies that we're going to give others invitations. The invitation never ends with us. So for the rest of our time together, which will be brief, let's, let's leave our discussion of heroes for a moment and just briefly ask, what do these four things lead to? Prayer, gospel, repentance, and discipleship. What follows on after them? First, mission. Verses 7 and 8. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And Paul shows us two things about mission. The first is this. It goes. It goes. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest. And Paul tells us through his letter to Timothy that we are to share in the sufferings as a good soldier. So we send others, but we're also sent ourselves. Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. But it doesn't only go, it grows. It says, not only here, but it's gone forth everywhere. We should always be feeling a slow, steady enlargening of our affections for our mission, our perception of mission. David Platt, who has sounded the horn about missions for a long time now, says when he's teaching and sharing stories at youth camps about some of the crazy things he's been able to do, like hike in the Himalayas and share with people who have never heard and rescue children out of human trafficking and stuff like that. He says, anytime I ever teach like that, guys, he says, dudes, I know you're going to come running up to me and say, I want to go rescue kids like that. I want to go hike in the Himalayas. And his first question is always, have you gone next door? Have you gone across the street to your neighbor? Because if you haven't been willing to do that, you're not going to really be that much good in the Himalayas or fighting human traffickers. Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, close, in Judea and Samaria, a little farther, and to the ends of the earth. And it took me a long time to see how dependent on the Spirit this verse is. Because Jesus tells us in, in John, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound like we can hear it this morning. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So when you're following someone you can't control and don't control, you will at some point see your vision of what they're doing and where they're going get bigger. Oh, I didn't know we were headed in this direction. Sweet. What's out here? And lastly, Testimony. The other thing this produces, mission and testimony. It says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception and how you turned for God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Let me tell you what a testimony is not. It's not a travel log. 
It's not a documentary of your sin. It's not a memoir of the glory days. A description of what has always been the case, because that says there's been no change at some point. Here's what a testimony is. It's a rundown. It's a greatest hits playlist of points one through four of this sermon so far. There's before Jesus, gospel and repentance. You turn to God away from the idols that you were running after. And then you tell him what it was like when you met Jesus. And that's discipleship, right? To serve the living and true God. And then there's after Jesus, mission. They themselves report. But Jesus who delivers, that's a testimony. And if you have a testimony, I'd like to invite you to come and share it with the youth. We're doing something on Wednesday nights right now called My Journey. And we're asking people to come in and share a five to seven minute testimony of what God's done in their life with our students. We wanted to connect our older generations and our younger generations, and we want them to hear stories of faith. So if you're interested in sharing your testimony, please come and see me, and I'd like to get you scheduled to come and share with our students. But by God's grace and the Spirit's power and Scripture's refining and encouraging power, we build a testimony you want remembered and you'd want shared. Because here's the truth, and we close with this. Every generation is looked back on and longed for its heroes. Paul's generation longed for him, but Polycarp stood up. And Polycarp's generation longed for him, but Justin Martyr stood up. And Martyr died for the church, and then Basil stood up. From Basil to Augustine, Augustine to Aquinas, Aquinas to Wycliffe, Wycliffe to Luther, Luther to Tyndall. All the way so on and so forth down the line until Billy Graham and, and C.S. Lewis and all these heroes, and then all the way down to John Rogers. And why do I tell you this? To convince you of this. God has always had his man. He will always have his man. He won't stop calling people to preach his word because his word must be preached. Jesus must be glorified. It's going to happen. And so when our heroes leave us, we can have confidence in what God has given us to not just survive, but thrive in this world that he's given us to live out our faith in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these faithful sheep who have shown up and girded themselves in rain jackets and umbrellas and have faithfully sat. What a testimony that is. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your word. As we head into some other special things here in just a moment, Lord, would you protect us? And if you see fit, shield us from this rain. We're going to give you glory no matter what, because you have always provided for us and you always will because you do not change. You are the changeless one, the, ch the timeless one. And we give you glory for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.